How many of you read Second Peter today? Did you raise your hands? A number of you have. I wonder if you got the same impression I did reading this letter through. That this was, uh, it almost seemed as this letter was written for us today. In the present hour in which we live. Every word of it is so pertinent, so contemporary, so filled with practical advice for the day in which we find ourselves. It uh, is at once confirmation of the, of the uh, freshness and vitality of the word of God, which never gets out of date. And also a um, suggestion that perhaps we've come, the cycle has come full turn. That uh, we're now living in days very similar indeed to those in the first century when this letter was first written. And that uh, the conditions we're facing in our world are almost the same in kind, if not in extent, to the conditions that were faced in the first century. Therefore, this is a most practical letter. Now, those of you who were with us last week, and we, when we look together at First Peter, will notice that there's a considerable difference between the first letter of Peter and the second letter. The first letter was a letter that uh, was full of rejoicing hope in the face of suffering. But this second letter has for its theme that of faithful truth, in the face of falsehood, how to detect error, how to live in the midst of deceit, how to distinguish between right and wrong and truth and error when it is very alluring and subtle and deceptive. And uh, it contains in it a wonderful formula for success as a Christian in that kind of a day. Uh, if I may give you just a brief outline of the letter that will help you perhaps, it falls uh, into three chapters, as you'll notice in, the, uh, in our versions, and uh, each of these strikes a different note. In the first chapter, the apostle is giving uh, his readers a word of exhortation on what the Christian life is all about. In the second chapter, he's giving a word of warning on how to recognize and uh, handle false teachers who arise. And in the third chapter, he's giving us a word of certainty about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the facts that underlie our faith. And then he draws a conclusion from that. It's a very simple outline, isn't it? But a very practical letter, as you would... Uh, expect coming from such a practical, hard-headed Christian as Peter was. I recall that uh, these, this letter was written very likely from the same place as the first letter when pa uh, Peter was a prisoner, perhaps of Nero in Rome. At least he's under great danger because in this letter he says that he feels his time is drawing near when he's to put off the body his body, his, his tent, his habitation, and to be with the Lord. And he says that this is perhaps uh, indicated by the Lord himself in an incident that's recorded for us at the close of the Gospel of John 
where the Lord Jesus said to Peter that there would come a time when men would bind his hands and lead them where he would not go. He didn't desire to go. And Peter understood that this meant that he was to suffer and die as our Lord died on a cross. And tradition tells us that that's the way the Apostle Peter died, that he was crucified. But it also says that he was so... um, so uh, humbled by the fact that he was counted worthy to die the same kind of a death that the Lord Jesus did, that he begged his captors to crucify him upside down. And this is the way he died, according to tradition. Now he's writing to these Christians in the midst of trouble, and this time he's not trying to encourage them with how to suffer in the face how to rejoice in the face of suffering, but now he's trying to help them how to be true in the face of falsehood. And this opening chapter has a wonderful word in the second verse. It's addressed to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Think of that. Here's an apostle writing to other believers, and he's addressing them as those who have obtained an equal a faith of equal standing with ours. We've been so tempted to think of these mighty apostles as men of such sterling character and of such abundant faith that they're far and away above us in their grasp of knowledge and truth and so on. But uh, the apostles themselves never thought of themselves that way. They regarded themselves as nothing but ordinary believers with the same equality of opportunity for faith that any other believer had. Years ago, I ran across an expression that stuck with me. I've never forgotten it because it's been such an encouragement to my own heart. It says this, Every, even the weakest believer, holds in his hands all that the mightiest saint ever possessed. Now that's the theme of Peter's opening chapter. Listen to these words. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's all the necessities, both for living, for handling life, and for manifesting righteousness or godliness, godlikeness in this world. That means that every believer, without exception, who has genuinely come to Jesus Christ, has all that it takes to handle all that life can throw at him. Do you believe that? I find a lot of people who don't, because they're always looking for something more, some new experience, some uh, different uh, reaction, some further revelations, some outstanding uh, feeling of some kind. And they think that unless they get that, they can never be the kind of Christian they ought to be. But you see how flatly Peter denies this? He says, if you've come to Christ, you have him. And if you have him, you have all that God is ever going to give you. You have all that it takes. You have all power and um, uh, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Now, if this is true, 
then uh, there's no excuse for failure, is there? That means if we have everything in Christ, we only need to know more of him. And we'll have all that it takes to solve the problems that we may be confronting. I wish I could drive that home in some practical way. To me, the great thing about being a Christian is that in Jesus Christ, I really am finding practical answers to every problem that I am confronted with. Uh, Paul in Ephesians says, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, that doesn't mean that when you become a Christian, you know everything that there is in all the books in all the world. But it does mean that you'll have an insight and an understanding as you grow in the knowledge of Christ to handle all the difficulties and all the heartaches and all the problems and to know what's happening and to understand life in yourself. So you can handle whatever life throws at you. To me, that's the great thing about Christianity. His divine power has granted to us already everything that it takes. And it comes through two things. Here's the channel by which this is made possible, made experiential in our life. You see, when you come to know Christ, you have all that it takes, but you haven't yet discovered it. You haven't found in terms of experience all this. So there are two channels by which it comes. Notice them. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. That's the first thing. The promises God has given you. These are not just mere glowing words. This isn't so much theological twaddle designed to kind of stir your hearts a bit. These are... These are sure and certain guarantees that God has given us that he will honor with all that he has. His very nature, his very character, his magnificence is at stake in these words. They're promises that are sure and certain. And therefore, the first thing we need to do is to learn what he's promised. That means an acquaintance with the scriptures. That's why, you see, it's impossible for you to Find fulfillment in your life and really discover the kind of being God wants you to be and how to be that unless you understand the word of God. You can take all the courses in school that you like and all you'll get is the accumulation of man's knowledge with its mixture of both truth and error and an inability to distinguish one from the other. And that's why even the most educated of persons who's, who doesn't know the Bible can make the most grievous and, and atrocious blunders. And it happens all the time. But uh, if we, we begin to understand these great and mighty promises, then we'll understand what life is all about. Because that's what they are for. They're to reveal things as they really are. And second... Uh, notice the effect of these promises first, that you may escape from the corruption that is in the world. That sounds uh, inviting, doesn't it? There's so much corruption around. Corruption means debasing elements. That which defiles and pollutes and destroys. And how are you going to escape from it? Unless you have the truth of God. No escape possible. 
We'll all be caught up inextricably in a, a mesh and a tissue of lies and deceit that we cannot distinguish unless we have something to compare it with, the truth of God. That's why we need these great and precious promises to escape the corruption which is in the world because of passion. Three passions are at the root of all human evil. Lust, which means uh, sexual passion in a wrong sense, for that which destroys the body, and greed, which is materialism, the desire for things and to be satisfied with things, and ambition, the pride of spirit that seeks popularity and fame and the praise of man. And those three things are what is wrecking the lives of men and women all over the earth. And those are the three things which particularly the truth of God delivers us from, as we understand and obey it. Now the second avenue of applying all these and discovering all these things that are available to us is given in verse 5, beginning there. For this very reason, make every effort, be diligent to supplement your faith, literally to round out your faith with virtue, that means excellence and of courage, basically. It's a, it's a great word. It means basically the courage to face life and uh, your virtue with knowledge and your knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness or patience and patience with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. That's the final thing. That's the complete equipment of the Christian as it begins to work itself out in life. Now, you see, you have all this in Christ, but you need to work at at discovering it and applying it in your life. That's what, uh, that's what we're all engaged in doing now, trying to apply these in practical terms with the people you live with and the people you work with and the irritating folks that uh, are always rubbing your fur the wrong way and uh, all these other people that are constantly causing you trouble, your in-laws and your outlaws. No matter who they may be, the folk that you live with, you see, you're to apply this there. And notice the result. For if these things are yours and abound, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful as a Christian. You want a recipe for success as a Christian? Well, there you have it. Faith and obedience. The knowledge of the promises of God and the application of them in specific situations. And these things will keep you from being unfruitful or ineffective. And furthermore, uh, whoever lacks these things is blind and short-sighted, even though he's a Christian. He's living just like anyone else. And he's forgotten, seemingly, that he was cleansed from his old sins. Even his regeneration has seemingly had little effect upon him. But be the more zealous, says the apostle, to confirm your call. To make it sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom, uh, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Huh. That means when it comes time for you to go home, 
the trumpets will be blowing in glory at your entrance into that kingdom because you've found the secret of successful living. I don't know a greater condensation in all the scriptures than that brief capsule of what the Christian life is all about. I wish I could spend the rest of the evening on that, but I can't. He goes on now to show us the two guarantees that underlie this. First, the eyewitness account of the apostle himself. And and I couldn't help in reading this but think of the stories we're being told today. Isn't it amazing that we're being told today that the New Testament is largely made up of myths, fables, legends, certain uh, ideas, uh, uh, invented imaginations of men that have gathered around the persons of uh, Christianity, the Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and others. And uh, they've gradually been built up in people's minds and added to and twisted through the course of centuries until they've taken on a form that is almost incredible. And uh, the only way we can understand this book is to somehow get down below and beneath all this accretion of the years and get down to a few basic facts. These are all myths. But that sort of a of a approach to Scripture stands in direct opposition to the clear and precise denial of the apostle. He says, we did not follow cleverly designed myths when we made known to you the facts of our Christian faith. And then he recites an instance. He says, I was with him on the holy mountain when he was changed before me. And I saw him. I was an eyewitness of that fact. When uh, And I'm making known to you what I saw, the coming and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And there's where Christian faith rests, you see. On the eyewitness account of men and women who were there and who simply report what they saw and heard and what Jesus did. Furthermore, he said this is confirmed by another voice, the voice of the prophets of the Old Testament. These men wrote, he said, not by their own uh, inspiration. They did not write their private opinions. They wrote what they were given by the Spirit of God, and they predicted accurately events that were to follow centuries removed. How do you explain that, says Peter? If that isn't confirmation of the truth of this thing, what could be? Two things, eyewitnesses and prophetic words, predicted account, events that underlie our faith. Now he moves from that into the second chapter where he gives us a warning of certain false teachers that will arise. And again, this sounds like it was written for our own hour. <laughs> False prophets, he says, also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. What a strange thing that in our hour, we've reached the stage where a great denomination is now uh, trembling on the very verge of declaring that there's no such thing as heresy. And that a heresy trial is unthinkable. Because 
actually, everything's true, or at least nobody can be certain of anything. How can you charge, therefore, heresy? But Peter says these will arise within the church. They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Which tells us that these men are not mere uh, uh, atheistic antagonists of Christianity. We've always had those. But these will be men who claim to be Christians. Who profess to love the Lord Jesus. Who profess to be followers of Christ. Yet the things that they teach will deny everything that he stood for. What echoes of some of the voices that are raised in our day. Many will follow their licentiousness, and because of them the way of truth will be reviled, held in contempt. People will look down upon those who believe the Bible as being simple-minded, ignorant folk who have no understanding of the great issues of the day, who are back in the dark ages and have not yet caught up to man come of full age. And uh, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. From of old, their condemnation has not been idle. Then he passes to the certainty of the judgment of these men who come in this way, and he recounts three instances of the past which prove that God knows how to handle a situation like this. Don't be alarmed when these false teachers arise and speak out these vast swelling words. God knows what he's doing. And he'll handle them. This is the whole thrust of this passage. He didn't spare the angels when they sinned, but he judged them. He didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah when they sinned, but he judged them. And he didn't spare Noah, uh, the, uh, the ancient world, but he judged it in the flood. And yet through all of them he preserved a remnant of integrity. And therefore his conclusion is, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Then there follows a very vivid and a very clear description of the characteristics of these false teachers. And I can only catch them up in a few words. First, they will be presumptuous. That is, they'll, they'll speak vast swelling words that sound very impressive and important about things uh, having to do with life and death and, and uh, uh, salvation and other great themes. But they'll really be ignorant. They don't know what they're talking about. They are like animals, says Peter, who uh, uh, are creatures of instinct, born to be caught and killed, reviling in matters of which they're ignorant. So that the first characteristic is presumption, the second is ignorance, and the third is shamelessness. They'll uh, encourage licentiousness, sexual misconduct. They will openly urge people to indulge their lusts freely and be shameless in this. And then the, the fourth one, they will be greedy. 
They have hearts trained in greed. And for the sake of money, will teach almost anything that they think people want to hear. And finally, they're pretentious. They uh, utter loud boasts of folly and entice with licentious passions those men who have barely escaped from those who live in error. And then this word, and I thought this is most illuminating in the face of the day in which we live, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Doesn't that sound like Dr. Thomas Leary and his swelling promises of of a glorious experience of freedom that you'll have if you try LSD. You'll have an opening of the mind and an entering into an experience of liberty such as you've never had before, he says to young people today. And when they try it, there is a sense of that, yes, but that's not the whole story, you see. With this apparent sense of freedom comes an increasing bondage that destroys and so the apostle concludes this with some of the most sobering words in scripture he says if after these have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and they are again entangled in them and overpowered the last state has become worse than the first it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after having known it to turn back from the holy commandment that delivers him. Think of this. Men who who work with the scriptures, who have in their hands the word of God, who work at it and study it and, ex- and attempt to explain it, who hold the position of teachers of the truth, and yet they themselves deny all that's taught and become the victims of their own delusions. Well, the final word in the book then is that of a note of certainty. Don't be discouraged, he says, by this this prevailing this prevailing atmosphere of error. For remember, there's one coming who will settle the whole thing. And he speaks then of assurance of the coming of the Lord. He says there'll be scoffers going out. And uh, as I said this morning, they will they will base their arguments against the second coming of Christ on the fact that uh, all things have continued as they were since the beginning of creation. This is a stable universe, they'll say. Nothing ever happens out of the ordinary. There can be no intrusion into this universe of a divine power that will that uh, operates in any way differently than what you can observe around you going on every day. But, says Peter, they're wrong. They've been wrong in the past, and they'll be wrong in the future. This is not a stable universe. This is a universe which has been upset terribly in the past, and it's going to be upset again. The flood is the record of the past, and it's pointing to a day in the future, when the world will be destroyed again, not by water, but by fire. And there comes this most unusually descriptive passage here, which many in which many of our nuclear scientists who are Christians have seen a description of uh, a nuclear uh, explosion. But by the same word, verse 7, the heavens and the earth that now exist have been stored up for fire, 
being kept until the day of judgment and destructive destruction of ungodly men. And then skip to verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up. Very instructive, isn't it? Now, he says, you need to remember two things about this, you Christians. Remember that uh, that the past has proved what the future will be. And the record of the flood is the guarantee that God is going to move as he did in the future, as he said he'll do in the future. And it's because the world that now exists is kept by the same word as the world before the flood. All you see that keeps life operating at all is the word of God, the authority of God. And therefore, all that God needs to do is to alter certain things in our physical universe, and the whole thing begins to fall apart. And he says, now, if you get impatient and wonder about the time, remember this. God does not look on time as you do. A day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. Therefore, remember that uh, God regards time differently. And what seems to drag on endlessly for us is but a few moments for him. Second, remember that God has a purpose in delay. And that purpose you ought to be very grateful for. Because if God once begins judgment, everyone is going to be included. And uh, he therefore delays his judging hand in order to give us all a chance to think over what life is all about. That's what he means. That's what the word repentance means. It means to think again. To take a good square look at the facts. And act upon that basis. And God withholds his hand in order that men might have a chance to think things over and change their ways. Isn't that wonderful? Aren't you glad he waited for you? A man was telling me some time ago he was walking with a friend by a church and he noticed on the bulletin board out in front the subject of the message for next Sunday. It was, if I were God. And it started these men thinking. And one of them turned to the other and said, you know what I would do if I were God? He said, I'd just lean over the battlements of heaven and take a great big breath and he, I'd blow it out of existence. Well, we know how he feels, don't we? Why does God put up with the insults of men? with the violence and the cruelty and the injustice and the darkness and the deviousness and the impurity and the shameless things that go on in our world? Why? Because he's a loving God and he's not willing that any should perish. But he waits and delays and endures in order that men might have a chance to think things through and see where it's all going. Now, the Apostle's conclusion of the whole letter is in verse 11 and following. 
Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of persons ought you to be? That's a good question, isn't it? Since this is where the world is going to end, what kind of a person ought you to be right now in terms of holiness and godliness? Waiting for, and uh, this is almost incredible, isn't it? Hastening the coming of the day of God. How do you, how do I hasten the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Bring at last into this world what men have hoped and dreamed of for centuries. A world at peace. A world of plenty. A world of blessing and quietness and joy and unlimited opportunity for all in the great enterprises of life. How do you bring about a world like that? Here we are in an election year. And every politician is promising this, isn't he? And we don't know which one to believe, because frankly, down deep underneath, we all suspect they're all phonies. None of them can produce what they promise, because you see, they're not getting at the heart of the problem. But this word says that we, the people of God, have, uh, have the ability to hasten the coming of this day. Now, how's it done? Well, three things primarily are suggested in the scriptures. First, prayer. Prayer. Remember what the Lord Jesus taught us? To pray, Thy kingdom come on earth as it, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer for hastening the day of God. Second, by witnessing. This gospel of the kingdom must be preached into all the nations, and then shall the end come, says the Lord Jesus. So as we share our faith, not out of a mechanical witness of trying to convince people of the truth of certain information, but out of the genuine witness of love and compassion, ministering to the needs of others, and speaking of the of a hope that in that uh, inflames us and engages all our hearts, we are hastening the coming of the day of God. And third, by obedience, there's a saying among the Jews that if all Israel would obey the law fully for one day, the Messiah would come. And that catches up this great truth. What God is looking for is men and women who will be obedient, who will be his. Because, you see, the truth is, the only freedom that men have at all is the freedom either to serve God or to serve the devil, one or the other. It's the only choice afforded to us. It's either one or the other. And the freedom uh, that service of the devil gives is only a temporary, apparent thing which soon vanishes in a darkening despair that leads out into nothingness and darkness. But the freedom that the Lord Jesus provides is a growing, enriching thing that widens out to the fullness of life. And it only begins, it never ends, it continues its widening until, as the Apostle says, all things are yours, 
all things present and things to come, the world and everything else is yours. We know Jesus Christ. Therefore, beloved brethren, since you wait for these things, be zealous to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. And then he says as a final P.S., Paul agrees to. Those things which our beloved brother Paul, he says, has written, some people take and twist and distort like they do the other scriptures. But don't pay any attention to them. And then he closes with two verses that I feel should be written large across the present lawlessness of our day. And in the face of all the exhortations to young people especially to be disobedient to the law, he says this, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, beware lest you be carried away with the error of lawless men and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and 